You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Episode 18, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. If you're a first-time listener, thanks for joining me. Thank your friend for sending you my way. Uh, make sure you subscribe after the show if you like it, and it costs nothing, so you can have nothing to lose. If you're a returning listener, thanks so much for coming back. I appreciate everything you're doing to spread the word about the show. I hope you find it as valuable and as informative as I do. I've learned a ton. I hope you have as well. If you have not listened to all the episodes, well, again, they're free. Go back and listen to all the ones that you've missed. There are a lot of different topics and a variety of medical issues. I'm sure you'll find a couple that will strike your fancy. So listen in again. The price is nothing. If you like the show, I'd encourage you to go to patreon.com slash the paradox. That's P-A-R-A-D-O-C-S. And there you can become a patron supporter of the show. For only $2 a month or 50 cents a show, you can get extra access to bonus features that I have on that website only. This would include interviews on other shows and the pilot podcasts with my daughter. For the $8 a month and the $25 a month levels, you get access to a free gift at the end of the year. And obviously for the $25 level, I'll even have you on the show if, you got, if you're a physician and have got something interesting to say. If not, then we'll definitely work something else out for you. But now on to the show. Obviously, the show notes page will be at theparadox.com slash 018. Today's episode is on credentialing. And before you turn off your podcast, <laughs> credentialing is actually pretty interesting. It seems very dry and boring. But credentialing is what is important for a physician to get work and to keep their work and to have access to hospitals and patients. Not much you can do in medicine without credentials, whether that's through insurance carriers or through hospitals, surgical centers, uh, or even some pharmacies. So credentialing is something that's critical for physicians to have control over, and when you don't have control over it, what happens? And today's story is with Dr. Lee Houston, who will give her recount of what happened to her when she lost control of her credentials, uh, and then what inspired her to look at them in a different way and to think see it as a possible business venture. We're going to talk about digitizing our credentials as physicians. She's going to mention her business model, what she has envisioned, a way of getting at least a quarter or 200,000 uh, physicians, a quarter of the physicians in the country, signed up into this network. Her contention is that if physicians own this space now, before everyone else starts buying it, like Kaiser or Google, or Amazon. It'll be, allow physicians to set up the system so that it rewards them, it does not punish them, and that they will have control over their identity as opposed to relying on someone else to control the information. Because obviously in today's digital age, as we're learning more and more, data is where the money is, it's where the power rests. As uh, I don't know if you've been paying much attention to recent stories, but there are people who have been kicked off social media platforms for their views. And so... Obviously, those, those people who have the ability to hold on to that information have a significant amount of power in today's, whether they're a private corporation or they're a public uh, entity. So it's very important that physicians have this. And I think if you're a physician, you absolutely need to know this. If you're a patient, it's really important to know uh, not only about credentialing and what, it can, what sort of pitfalls there are for physicians, but this is a platform that would significantly help the dissemination of new ideas and innovations in medicine much better than what we have now. And so that is obviously something that'll keep you healthier and will be better for your, will obviously be better for your family uh, going forward in their health. So again, I'd encourage you to share the show if you like it. Make sure you subscribe. 
convince your friends and colleagues to listen in. So without further ado, Dr. Lee Houston from New York City, an ER physician and the creator of HPEC.io, a way of digitizing credentials to be owned and operated by physicians for physicians. Enjoy. Welcome back. This is Dr. Eric Larson. I'm here with my new friend, Dr. Lee Houston. Dr. Houston is based out of New York, and she is um, a board-certified ER physician. She went to the Albany College of Medicine, and she currently practices outside of ER in uh, family practice. But we're going to talk today not about medical practice so much as we're going to talk about her new venture. She is starting up, a, I guess we'll just say it's a credentialing business, but it's far more than that. But it's called HPEC. It's H-P-E-C, and you can find it at hpec.io. All things uh, that we talk about today, links will be on the show notes page at theparadox.com slash 018. So first, I'd like to welcome you to the show, Dr. Houston. Thank you for having me. Uh, so why don't you go in and talk to us about, to start out, I guess, about what your venture is, because it's not just a credentialing platform, but it's, it's far more than that. So why don't you just kind of dive straight in? Well, um, you know, so a lot of, there's a lot of things that have been contributing to uh, physician disempowerment. Um, you know, managed care coming in, taking over, uh, hospital buying up practices, equity for, private equity firms buying up practices, and a lot of it has come along with um, a lot of in administrative burdens, paperwork burdens. As a local lieutenant's emergency physician, which is what I did for nearly 10 years before transitioning into private practice, I, it took me two to three months to credential for a hospital. And when I looked into this, it cost seven to $11,000 per physician per hospital per credentialing. And it doesn't include the opportunity cost of potential mistakes in paperwork. Um, and then as well as the physician's personal uncompensated time of 10 to 20 hours of their life. And, you know, this credentialing isn't just from hospital to hospital. You know, you have to submit these paper, you know, paperwork to licensing boards and resubmit. And all of these things, you know, we are in a technologically advanced age where these things could be streamlined in a digital space. And even better, there's a new technology where that digital space can be a secure, confidential space that's owned by the doctor. So the individual physician can own their identity that's attached to their credentials so that they then can transfer those skills to whomever they choose. And um, it's not <clears throat> in a centralized source like um, the CAQH or CMS or the state um, licensing boards. So that's the thing that's very unique about this, this new opportunity. Right. And, and so for, for people who aren't familiar with credentialing, it's a term we kind of throw around not even thinking about it. But uh, if I serve on a credentialing board and in my hospital uh, and I help credential mid-level providers, uh, but essentially, it's to verify that someone is who they say they are. They receive the degrees or the um, certifications that you think are important, uh, that they're, and that you're going to verify that um, you know malpractice suits against them have been settled. That they're, but basically, you're you're just trying to verify that this person is not a criminal or that they're actually our physician. Uh, and so, what these credentialing boards will do? These hospitals, they of course meet monthly or every other month or something like that. There's a office usually that has um, uh, just a secretarial pool that, that works in the credentialing as well, Just and that's all they do. They're calling hospitals, they're calling licensing boards. They're just verifying all this information. Uh, and so, and you know, I've been on this credentialing board for a number of years now, and, and we've actually found well, at least one or two people who, because of our credentialing, they actually were um, not the best individuals, we'll just say, and that they were, some things were maybe, maybe falsified, it's kind of hard to say, but Wow. Um, uh, so anyway, it does. It, there's a reason to do these, to have this credentialing process. And so the credentialing is just verifying that this person is who they say they are. Because you've, everyone hears that sensational about, you know, story. Like there's that kid in Florida, was it like five years ago, who was practicing medicine and he was like 20 or something. <laughs> I can't remember exactly. It was or the Catch Me If You Can movie. It was, it was you exactly. Concur? I concur. <laughs> right. It was exactly <laughs> like that. This kid's. This kid, and he didn't even look. Well, I mean, I don't even know how anyone thought he was a doctor. I mean, he was—I don't know. I mean, I, 
anyway, so that sort of thing is a way <laughs> for the hospitals protect themselves. And and not just hospitals, like you mentioned, it's going to be an uh, insurance carrier once they also have a credentialing process. Or if you're uh, I'm an anesthesiologist, I work at seven different um, centers. I mean, a couple of them are affiliated with one hospital system. But every independent surgical center will have its own credentialing process. We have an office-based anesthesia uh, practice at our, with our office. And we have our own credentialing system. So we actually credential the providers we're doing anesthesia for. Because if you're going to do anesthesia somewhere, you want to make sure that the person you're providing anesthesia for uh, actually has, you know, they're licensed. They're like a dentist or whatever. Otherwise, you, know, you may not get paid or whatever in the future. So it's sort of a two-way thing. And so I guess the, to sort of come back around, it's what you're looking to do is to just say, we're going to have to do the credential process once and make sure I have something that is verified so that everyone doesn't have to repeat all this work, right? Except that the other, the other hitch here is that the doctor is the one who's carrying this around with them, sort of like your driver's license or something. Absolutely. Um, <clears throat> and it's interesting because you said the words authenticate and validate. Um, authenticate and verify who these people are. And so this new technology, it's, it's very interesting because it is all about trust, validation, and authentication. And it's the same technology that's behind Bitcoin. And when people hear Bitcoin, oh my God, it's a big scam. A lot of people have a lot of preconceived notions about it. But that is one use case for the technology behind it authenticating and validating that you have the coin and that you're able to transfer the coin and that the person's able to receive it. That's in the case of cryptocurrency, which is one use case for the blockchain technology. There's many, many, many other use cases. And in this use case, it would be your credentials that you are able to authenticate and validate in this digital space. And um, once it's done, it's secure for life. It never needs to be redone, as you said. And this is something that would save uh, billions of dollars a year. I think about $5 billion is the estimate. And it would save, you know, out, you know, 10 to 20 hours of the doctor's time every time they have to transfer them. So sure. it's really something that's very powerful and very useful for both healthcare systems and physicians. And if you're listening to this, you may think this does not seem like a big deal because, well, it's just a bunch of people doing a little bit of paperwork. Why does this matter? But to your point, your ability to move uh, freely and to um, provide services to facilities is really slowed down by this. And so I'll, I'll point to when you mentioned that it takes a couple months, that really matters if suddenly, it, and if you can think of there are a number of situations, let's say you're a urologist and you've got a specialized skill and you're in a smaller community hospital where you have you know one urologist or maybe two and someone gets sick or gets cancer or whatever. I mean, something happens. Now you don't have a urologist and your ability to get a new person is going to take months, even if someone's available to come work for you right now. Right. And so, and, and so this is where that sort of thing makes a difference. And that affects the health of people who are you know, in that community. Because now you don't have to travel two hours to get to a hospital to, in a bigger city. You can get that care right away because you can, you can bring someone up. You can pay them a little extra fee with, as a locum tenens. And you can you can start taking care of people right away. Um, right. And the beautiful thing about this is there's no longer going to be a locum tenens fee because this is going to be peer to peer. So you're going to be able to pay that doctor directly, find that doctor directly on the network. There's going to be no more third party interference or middlemen. And what's, what's also interesting is that I, I hope that this eventually goes global. So, you know, in a case of a natural disaster or a, a war, you know, if, all of a sudden, there were a bunch of people that had eye injuries, for example. You could pull the network and find ophthalmologists who are available to work and to be deployed to these areas to help people. Um, there's so many different use cases for this. Um, and I think that, you know, a both ends would find it very valuable. But there's also another really interesting part of it that I haven't mentioned yet. And that is that this identity for a physician will be attached to an ability to vote on a democratic forum. Um, so there, right now, physicians have <clears throat> several ways of communicating. Mostly it's via word of mouth. We communicate via journal articles. We go to conferences. These are also very slow and antiquated ways of, uh, of discussing things. You know, we also have Facebook, we have Doximity, but all of these are fragmented and siloed ways of convening. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we have no space where we all can go and, 
still be our individual sovereign self with our own ideas, opinions, practices, politics, but also communicate with each other and discuss issues. Right now, you might be on, you know, the American Board of Anesthesiology, and you might have the state, you know, the state, um, you know, board as well that you're affiliated with. But how do you, you know, discuss anything with surgeons or with emergency physicians or primary care doctors? Um, it's those types of conversations don't really happen, and if they do, they're in these like siloed fragmented spaces and it's it's difficult to convene about important issues so so when you, you mentioned this sort of it's almost like a i don't know i guess a giant bulletin board right where you can mm-hmm. discuss what's I, I mean to you must be looking at more than just credentialing at this point right because now we're talking about if we're, we're we're not voting on credentialing stuff we're we must be talking about other other things what what sort of uh what sort of vision do you have for this platform in uh, expanding? Well, you know, for example, there's like, you know, there's a lot of things that are going on and healthcare is a very, very complicated uh, system. And there's a lot of controversy over whether or not that system is working. And I would say, in my opinion, that it's not working. Uh, it's cost, you know, our healthcare system, especially in the United States, costs the most and has overall the worst outcomes of any other industrialized nation. Uh, we're talking about a $3.2 trillion economy, and that's the fifth biggest economy in the world. Meaning, if I get this correct, I think I have this order correct. We have the U.S. economy, China, Japan, Germany, and then the U.S. healthcare system <laughs> is bigger than every other country's co- entire economy. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah. Why are we spending so much money? The answer is that there's a lot of third-party tapeworms sucking <laughs> American healthcare dollars away from the actual care of patients. You know, right. there's the, you know, there's there's managed care, there's insurance, there's administrators the number of administrators have gone up by 3,500% since 1975. That's crazy. And that's where our money is going. It's not going to actual care. Most of it's not going to the doctors either who are providing the care. Right. Um, and so there must have been something. What happened to you to make you think about this? Because most people don't spend much time thinking about credentialing outside of the fact that it's annoying. Um, it takes a lot of time and, you know, some money. So did something happen to you that led you to, you know, go into this venture? Well, so I'll tell you, I've always been an investor and I started investing in crypto in 2015. Um, so I started thinking about this technology and learning about it. And I was reading every single white paper specifically in the healthcare space in, uh, blockchain and cryptocurrency and, understanding and learning the whole landscape. And as I was reading, I was like, this is kind of more of the same nonsense in some ways. This is more of like this big wig VC guy is going to come in and, you know, take over this area of healthcare and build a new system that now we as physicians have to interact with if we want to have patients or we need to continue to do what we're trying to do all by ourselves. And I thought to myself, you know, I started reading about digital identities and I started reading about governance platforms. And I said, well, wouldn't it be awesome if we could create a democratic forum for physicians to communicate? And I was thinking actually more of it from a a patient protection perspective where we could, you know, for example, as you said, a highly specialized urologist who has a patient that, you know, who's only seen two or three of these cases in his life, wouldn't it be awesome if he could, you know, easily, rapidly transfer skills and knowledge with another urologist across the U.S. or even across the world and with the patient's permission, discuss the case. Right. Um, and also convene with all of these other urologists around the world if something new came up. He found a new technique or developed a new, um, you know, medicine or treatment. Right now, you kind of are at the whim of the journals publishing you and then hoping that that doctor across the U.S. or across the world saw that important article or that you presented it to the right conference and the right people that 
you know, information needs to be disseminated more efficiently in this current system. Sure. And we now have the technology to do that. So my original idea was really just about the, the governance and the digital identity and physicians being able to easily communicate and collaborate. And then I did actually have something happen to me um, in 2017, where a hospital I previously worked for essentially stole my identity. Uh, they were using my PTAN number, which is my Medicare Medicaid provider number, to bill for charts after I had already left. And I had actually left the state and I started working in a different state at the time. And everything was fine. I had clean licenses on both ends. I moved back to the other state. So I was in Florida. I left Florida. I worked in California. I moved back to Florida. I start working again. And then all of a sudden I get this letter saying that I'm being sanctioned because it was appearing as if I was working without a license the previous year. I said, well, I wasn't even working here last year. What are you talking about? And so, of course, the bureaucratic process with CMS, it took me months to find out what actually happened. And what actually happened was the hospital was billing charts under my name when I wasn't even there. My license had lapsed briefly because I wasn't paying attention because I wasn't using that license. And it was making it appear as if I was working without a license. And I got shafted. And I needed, I actually, I lost my job over that. And it was devastating. Because as you said, so it took me many months to figure out what the problem was. So that's four months of my life just to find out what happened. And then, uh, you know, as you said, two to three months to credential. So it took another three months after that. So I didn't work for a half of a year. And after all the litigation, not litigation, but all the legal fees and the time, I had like essentially burned through a huge chunk of my savings that I had actually saved to buy a home. And I was unable to buy a home that year and I'm now rebuilding. So that credentialing experience of like not having a job for three months, even though the hospital down the street needed me desperately, um, combined with my previous like thoughts around the digital identity, well, my previous understanding of blockchain Mm -hmm. later helped me to kind of bring them together. Um, And uh, so it's not just an open democratic forum where we can talk. It's actually a way that's going to make our lives easier and make the lives of hospitals and healthcare systems easier too. Well, that would definitely uh, motivate me to to search for solutions. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, that's uh, you know that's the sort of thing that. Um, well, I mean, it's as someone who's a locum who is not planted for a long time at some institution, you're certainly at more risk because you know, of course, every time you enter any sort of interact have any sort of interaction with a new new facility or institution, there's an there's an opportunity for an error in, a, in the bureaucracy. Uh, Bingo. And, a, and whether it was intentional or not, I imagine it was probably unintentional. I mean, most hospitals aren't you know, trying to steal charges from people or use it. Uh, it's just you know, them messing up. But of course, you're the one who faces the repercussions for it. And of course, it happened so much earlier, like you said, a year before, that you, it hadn't even occurred to you because you're certainly not getting paid for, <laughs> for those services they were charging under your name. Uh, right. So... Yeah. So imagine if you had keyed permission digital access to your um, your ability to bill for Medicare and Medicaid that you owned and you had sovereign control over that is in one central space that's your personal digital identity. Um, and you could pull that permission when you leave the hospital. Right now, it's like there's like 50 places I need to go to double check and triple check. And every right. three months, I actually just log- tried to log into one of these I forget what it was, maybe CAQH. And I noticed it was like not even my email. It was like the email of some locums company that I used to use that sure. now I had to find a way to log in because they were logging in under my name. And it's like there's no, there's no security of my professional brand and my personal credentials in all of these systems that, you know, these centralized databases that I have no control over and are being accessed by God knows who, God knows when. So, so as, as someone who sits on a credential committee, I mean, my question, my concerns in sort of a system like this is, let's say that some of their sanctions against you at the hospital, let's say you grab a nurse and, and uh, you know, start shaking them or something that you cause some, mm-hmm. and you, you lose your hospital privileges over some sort right. of incident. Uh, and then you're like, oh, I'm out of here. And you take off before, maybe you see the writing on the wall or maybe, or maybe this hospital has sanctioned you and, and remove your privileges. How, how, if I'm a, um, on a credentialing 
board somewhere else, another hospital. How do I know that that would be on your record since you're owning the record? And obviously you wouldn't want that on your record <laughs> since you're sort of well, like- Well, so I, I still think that it's going to be the hospitals are going to need to do their own due diligence. Okay. But that's not, that has, that's between hospital and the hospital. The hospital has to call and say, hey, okay. was this doctor a jerk or not? Sure. And they're still welcome to do that. I'm just talking about the licensing. The It's like you did med school once, you did residency once. Why do we keep having to upload this and right, show everybody right. this and validate okay. this and authenticate this? Why do we keep having to do this over and over again? That's unnecessary you know, redundant administrative waste. Sure. So, so basically the stuff that is static, the stuff that like I completed high school, I completed college, yet, et cetera, et cetera, that stuff, which, you know, can't change. And so that you're going to, that's the stuff you're carrying around. I worked at this hospital from now then to then. And where the hospital contacts, the other hospital and said, Hey, was this person disruptive? Were they, you know, a bad physician or did they do a good job? You still send out your, your, um, oh, your character references, I guess you call them. Uh, yeah. So that process. Yeah, I mean, I'm talking about like you know, and also the license. We so here's the thing. This this hasn't been built yet. This is in the concept, you know, the um, conception phase where you know I have a team. We can build it in lots of different ways. We can make it just your license and just your residency certificate. I would prefer to have like NPI on there, DEA. I'd like to have your licenses on there that do need to be updated so that people can have that that information because having that attached to your digital identity. If there's a policy that's coming up in the state of Florida and you're in that state and your medical license, it shows that your medical license is in that state, then that you can be made aware of what's going on and you can discuss and convene on that policy or practice um, if that's attached to your identity. So I, I do, you know, I do want other things to be attached to it as well. Right. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, that makes sense. And then, um, so the biggest problem with any of these sort of ventures is that you need to get some sort of critical mass of adoption, right? I mean, I spoke to someone about, you know, these cryptocurrencies to pay for medical procedures and it's all great, but you have to have a certain uh, level of buy-in before mm-hmm. it's you know useful. Like, right, Bitcoin's not really that helpful if less than, you know, 0.1% of vendors actually accept Bitcoin as a currency. So then, right. then it's sort of like an investment product. It's not, so it's not a money, which is, I think, ultimately what people had hoped, uh, you know, a currency would be. So in this sort of venture, how, what sort of adoption do you see where I'm a, a, a hospital board? I'm like, oh yeah, this person's got HPEC verification. I just use that and I save myself, you know, two weeks worth of work or something like that for the research. Two weeks of work, thousands of dollars. Right. Yeah. It's all verified. I know that, that this is, this has been checked by 20 different people. I mean, that's the advantage of a blockchain, right? That it's, mm-hmm. it can be publicly verifiable, but it's uh, independently secure, I guess. Right. Yes. So, uh, so what, what sort of adoption do you need for this, for this, for this to be, do you think effective? So I just want to point out that there are healthcare systems already building this type of technology. Um, putting their providers' credentials on tech like this that they own. So it's kind of decentralizing and then recentralizing because the tech is so strong and powerful. Um, And I, you know, I want to warn everybody about this, that this is coming with or without you. So similarly to how EHR was kind of imposed upon us as physicians, we're extremely resistant to it. And now we're stuck with these clunky, slow systems that really don't serve us or our patients because we didn't step it up when we had the opportunity to and do it our way. Right. So this is an opportunity for us to do it our way, um, to kind of assert ourselves at the head of the decision-making table in this new digital age, um, you know, not repeat the mistakes of the past. And um, it, I do need a critical mass. and I'm hoping to have 500,000 by 2020. And there's about 800,000 practicing doctors in the U.S. They'll say it's a million online, but the actual ones who are practicing, it's not clear how many are part-time versus full-time. Sure. But if I get the critical mass of about 200,000, I think that that would be strong enough for this to be powerful and for this to be something that, you know, we as physicians are able to say, hey, this is how we do things now. You know, this is how we do our credentialing and you know, you're welcome to use this very fast, efficient system that we've created that we have control over, and it's going to be much easier for you. So here you go. This is a gift to you. <laughs> um, uh, but if we don't, then you know, you know, maybe they'll 
take those credentials, maybe not. But if it's not something where everybody's using it, it would be kind of hard to expect others to, you know, adopt it as well. Yeah. But I do want to point out that the thing that's valuable for physicians and patients in this, uh, in what I'm talking about, is, is also the democratic forum where physicians can convene and collaborate. You know, that's something that is, is really needed. Uh, this old school way of doing things through conferences and journal articles and Facebook and proximity, that's a still an old school way. It's time to move forward right. to a system that's not centralized, where there's no censoring abilities of anyone, where, you know, the government can't come in and shut you down. You know, I have a friend that has over a million uh, followers on Facebook, and some of his followers don't see his posts. And right. he, he reached out to Facebook and asked why. And they're like, well, that's because you have too many. And I'm like, this is a free service. And he's like, well, I'll pay you. They're like, no, we don't work that way. So, you know, that's his professional brand. He's built that community. And now he can't use it the way he wants. And that's the problem with the centralized database. And similar to a bank, you put your money in the bank, you save a million dollars, and then you, you know, you ran out on Uncle Sam and didn't pay your taxes for a few years, the government can come in and tell Bank of America to freeze your account. And then you're in deep doo-doo. And that's because Bank of America is centralized. And that's what's powerful about this technology. It's decentralized. Nobody can go in and shut you down. Right. Well, I mean, there's, I mean, if certainly when it comes to the, the forum, I mean, if you look at the way information is shared now compared to say 20 years ago, I mean, I think you're younger than me, but when we're kids, it's pretty much three major networks to provide the news, time, a couple, you know, journals and newspapers. And now, of course, anyone's a journalist and can place the, put the information out there. It's a lot harder to suppress information. And, and, um, and the same thing right now, that's, as you mentioned, that's how it is in academics and with the journals. Uh, it's mm -hmm. very restricted in sort of what sort of things are report, or I shouldn't say reported, but um, mm -hmm. how, what, what sort of articles are available to specialties. And so, you know, it's, it just takes longer for innovation to obviously bubble up uh, things, best practices and things like that. And so and there's a lot of censoring there. Sure. You know, if you read a lot of these journals, I'm not going to name names, but you really, you read what's being published in some of them. And then you look at who's publishing them and you look at their disclosures. And then you go to opensecrets.org and you follow the money trail. And it's scary. Sure. It's scary. What's being you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, a lot of special interest rhetoric that's now right. being peddled as science. Right. And I, I want to point out, I don't think it's, it's probably not mostly nefarious. I think it's just, it's almost a, um, there is, there's bias in journals in just what they sort of see as important or um, you, they have preconceived notions of how, you know, certain medicines or things should be practiced. And so, They'll just have, you know, they'll just, they'll have some in, inherent bias in what sort of articles they choose to publish or not publish. Uh, because, you know, obviously lots of valid, valid studies that are performed and, you know, they're just, you can only have so, you only have so much room to print. And so anyway, so that's, so, but there's definitely a lot of influence from other parts of, you know, pharmaceutical companies or device companies, et cetera, et cetera, that affect <laughs> as you said. Right. And money talks. And, oh, yeah. you know, and this is all, of course, my opinion, you know, and my experiences, you know, but when you really look deep into what's going on with, you know, the safe harbor law and pharmacy benefit manager kickbacks and, you mm -hmm. know, who's getting campaign financing and, you know, who's sitting on boards and, you know, who's friends with who, you start to question what's, what's reality and what's, um, what's being, you know, what's being, What's pure? What's pure science? You know, right? Yeah, I think uh, I've had a couple of discussions with some other people. Um, uh, Dr. Hunt had a really interesting one where we're just discussing these people come around and talk to you about pharmaceuticals, and so they'll they'll come and give a talk about you know, let's just say it's a new pain medication, and they'll come and they'll give a talk and they'll give they'll buy dinner for a couple docs or maybe for you mm -hmm. know for anesthesia some CNAs or whatever. A couple people get show up and and what's interesting is his point is is that these these pharmaceutical companies choose someone who's a leader in um in that specific field. 
and someone who is likely to end up on a guideline board with a with a, a specialty. So for instance, if you have a blood pressure medicine, a new one, you have a guy who's likely to, to sit on the American Cardiology uh, Forum for you know, making recommendations for how to treat hypertension. And you have them give a talk, you pay them money, you fly them around, and you're not you're not giving the having this person give talks to convince other physicians and providers that this is a great medicine. But by having them go on this tour for, say, two months and give 25 talks about this medication, you have convinced that that leader in in especially that what they're saying is because they're getting, crowds are showing up to listen to them, that their medicine is probably effective and useful and probably should be considered when developing guidelines. <laughs> and so it's a sort of a reverse way of, of selling it. You're selling the person who's making the pitch because they're not generally make you pitch. Usually these people are coming and they're just talking about the studies and the data and things like that. And they're not, they may not even been in the development process or the study process for this medication. But it's very interesting that you're almost sort of convincing the people who are going to be making, sitting on these boards that make these guidelines, which many people follow. And so there's all this sort of, I guess, kind of crazy, uh, crazy way of, of getting things pushed forward that you just don't even think about. But in doing this podcast, I've learned a lot of things and and look at things a lot differently. Uh, whether that's the especially the accreditation boards mm-hmm. uh, and how they they put put forth studies and they get into the journals and they don't disclose their their financial arrangements uh, that that the study is pushed by a special board, which not surprisingly will say special boards are great <laughs> in the certification mm-hmm. process, and they don't even disclose that. And that's what you're talking about when right. you talk about open secrets, right? Right. And, you know, this is in general, like a, a problem. I don't even want to call it a problem. It's, it's a learned behavior for everybody, but specifically physicians. Um, and the fact of the matter is, is, you know, it's really, really hard to consider the possibility that you're wrong when your livelihood depends on you being right. Um, and so, as you said, like, you know, you spend six years traveling the country talking evangelizing this miracle drug and then you find you you're on the board of a journal and you somebody publishes data that you're wrong um you don't want to publish that right yeah and i actually you know i have i i you know i know somebody who had this happen he was uh head of a big group i'm not going to say what type of group and the data was starting to show that they were hurting patients and all of these people were so invested in what they were working on that essentially they fired him because he wanted to publish the data and it was a big problem for him. And he lost and it, he was kind of blacklisted from his specialty for a period of time and wasn't able to work. And it was a real big mess for his career because he was trying to do the right thing. Right. And that's a problem. And that's the problem that we are trying to solve with HPEC. Yeah. We're trying to allow people to get back to doing the right thing, get back to taking good care of patients, get back to upholding the Hippocratic Oath without third-party interference, without special interests influencing your decision-making. And um, in order to be able to you know, take good care of patients, which is what we always wanted to do when we decided to become doctors. So you're clearly brilliant, uh, and uh, but I'm guessing that you don't do all the coding yourself. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. Right. No, so, I have a technical team. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and I imagine they don't work for free. So you're probably out trying to get venture, venture capital for this project and to get people investing and to, because this thing doesn't, this software doesn't write itself, right? I'm so, not looking for a venture capital, actually. So, so what, okay. So then go through the, go through the process. So you came through. I just had a thing on entrepreneurs launching an app and some simpler mm-hmm. thing, things. This is obviously much more complicated. Mm-hmm. So you you could develop the idea, and then you you figured out what you what you wanted to make, mm-hmm. and then you're then what were your next steps? I mean, you're looking marketing or trying to. I mean, what goes? So next? I'm I found so I'm 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 looking for a technical co-founder still, but I have three technical people that will probably. I, that one of them I, or is the one I would choose. They're all amazing that I'm working with. They're advising me right now for nothing. We have no agreement. They just think this is such an amazing idea. They want to help me. Um, they're very, 
well-versed in blockchain, digital identities, gaming, um, AI, and they, you know, they, they want to help doctors because they see the healthcare crisis and they want to fix this problem with me. And, um, so yeah, you know, I'm going to have to pay a, a technical team to build this out and it's going to take six months or so, but unlike a lot of the other, uh, blockchain and healthcare startups, this, I want to keep owned by the doctors and I want it to be equitably owned. And so it's a true decentralized project, um, which um, I've also recently submitted um, to present to DevCon, which is the Ethereum um, development convention in Prague, uh, where I'm, I'm hoping that maybe even Ethereum, the Ethereum Foundation might even build this for us. So this might be something that we could have gifted to us if um, I'm able to present it in the way that it is, which is it's a humanitarian effort to fix the healthcare crisis in the United States and hopefully bring it globally after that. Um, and uh, so, yeah, you know, everything costs money and I'm only trying to get that money from physicians because if anybody's going to make money off of this, I want it to be the actual doctors who are providing the care. You know, our brains are our intellectual property. We've been exploited by healthcare systems long enough and it's time for us to, um, you know, flip that switch and start, you know, being treated fairly and so that we can treat our patients fairly. Right. And, and I think it's important to point out that, as you said, this is the sort of thing that's going to happen, um, whether it comes from the government, although that they're so slow, it's unlikely that it's going to be, they'll, they'll just make someone else do it. Um, but, uh, but this sort of digital identity and, um, your, all your data will be kept together in one place and whether you're the one who controls that or whether it's owned by someone else and so you have to ask permission to get to access it you know it'll charge you fifteen dollars or whatever it is to you know, access it each time so that's really what we're talking about here because probably it's all going to happen at some point whether securing a blockchain or whatever and so it's sort of like having um, asking someone who is who can see to design a, a house for someone who can't see right so you're you're no you want you want someone who has experience in in getting through the world with whatever whatever the condition is, and that's why. So, when, as physicians, we have these things where, like, why is this system built this way? Because it doesn't make any sense from a workflow standpoint, or you know, it's not the data actually, it's not the information I care about. This is obviously designed by people who had different goals. And so, when we talk about electronic health records, it's gathering all sorts of information that it makes no clinical. Yes. no clinical importance to us, but it's important for, say, an insurance company or for the right. government to get demographic and data. And we're the ones who are paying the price of just collecting all this just useless information and paying uncompensated administrative time. Uncompensated. It's like we're we're data gathering monkeys for this medical machine, right. and this is our data that we're creating. So we should own it, and we should own any benefits that come from it, and so should our patients because it's actually our patients record. So the patient should actually own that data and we should have permission to access only granted by our patients. And anybody else who gets permission to access should have to pay the patient for it. Right. Yeah. And and I think what's important here to point out, because I mean, obviously I talked to you earlier before show that, that this, my audience is not all physicians. In fact, I, I'm guessing probably less than half are physicians. But the point here is that if you're a patient, which everybody is at some point in their life, some more than others, obviously, is that if your physician's taken away from doing medical stuff, they're not treating people. And if they're also forced to do things that are not what they want to do, like, I mean, you know, no one looks to, to do a lot of extra paperwork, they get burnt out, they're less effective as physicians, they're less empathetic, and, and they're, you know, their time, they're taken away, so they're less available, right? Every yes. hour that I'm spent doing data collection is an hour I'm not spent on direct patient care. Now suddenly, exactly. right? Or I need new mid-levels or something else to take care of this stuff. And so the important thing, of course, is to have physicians empowered so that they can take care of you, which is the important thing because no one wants to do paperwork. I mean, it's a necessary part of life, but you want to minimize not it. Not for long. I really don't think it's going to be for long. I mean, there's so many really amazing, innovative technologies that are out there. Like there's this new AI device that uh, recognizes your voice. So you just put the pod in the room and you start talking to your patient and it knows the difference between your voice and their voice. And it 
documents everything for you as if, so you don't even have to chart. And then you can go in and glance at it and make changes. So it's like a AI device scribe. And that's a new thing that came out. So I really think that like the future of humanity um, with technology, if uh, the people stand up and start asserting themselves as uh, the rightful um, you know, decision makers in their sovereign lives, I think that the future is where technology no longer disrupts and interrupts the doctor-patient relationship, where it actually enhances it and makes our lives easier and makes the patient's lives easier, and where technology uh, no longer steals time from us, it actually gives us more time. And so this physician shortage is a real problem, but as you said, we're spending 20 hours on paperwork just to be able to work. Can't right. work for two to three months if we lose a job. Can't, you know, spending hours and hours documenting instead of actually speaking to patients and using our brains to like figure out problems, which is, you know, why do we go to medical school so, for so long if we're only data gathering for the insurance companies? We should be using our, you know, intellectual property to like generate new innovative ideas on how we can take care of people and thinking about your medical problem and what we can do to make you healthier. That's what we should be doing with our time. Why are right. we doing that? Well, it's because the systems you've rigged against us and it's time to flip that around. Yeah. No, I think, I, I don't think there's any question about that. And the more I've started thinking about the whole um, physician shortage, uh, which you know, everyone talks about the physician shortage, which is real. It's hard to get to see. I mean, if you imagined if you cut paperwork uh, and the non-clinical work in half, which one would think with technology, that's what technology usually does. And most, it makes you more productive, except medicine, it's made us less productive in general. Uh, you would double the amount of people you have taken care of. I mean, I, so you don't have to get train more people. You just have to make what they're doing more efficient. And and that means the systems that are helpful and not uh, ones that get in their way between taking care of people. Absolutely. So, so with this, so with HPAC, uh, what, what is your, what is your timeline? I know you said by 2020, if you had even a quarter physician, which we're guessing is 200,000 or so in the country mm-hmm. who are adopting this, that it'd be recognized by most, uh, hospitals and and credentialing boards uh, that at least you know it's valid. Um, how do physicians get involved at this point? If you're someone who knows a physician, you're like, hey, this sounds like a really great idea. You need to listen to this episode, or you need to find out more about this HPEC. You know, how do they get involved, and uh, what do you do to to get in, to get into this now that it's because it's just starting, right? You haven't actually launched anything at this point. No, but I, I am building my founding partner team, and it's growing every day. So. Um, if any of this stuff resonates with you, you can go to www.hpec.io, hpec.io, um, and we have a new website being developed, but this is still the old beta test website, but you're still able to put your um, information into the form. Um, and it's just a pledge. You're pledging to participate in this. And if you participate, you will have sovereign ownership over your digital identity and your professional brand and whatever you choose to do with it will be yours. Um, so if you want to be able to vote on this democratic form to have your voice heard, to uh, make your life easier, make your credentialing, transferring of credentials easier, and have a collaborative a way to convene with your fel- fellow colleagues, then please go put your name in, sign up. We are not crowdfunding any money yet. We are just getting a list of people who are interested and so that way, when it's time, we have we can really start making moves. Um, so that's that's where we're at now. And there's two options. Um, there's the founding partnership option, and then there's the membership option. So if you really, really think this is an amazing idea, and you want to put your you know sweat equity and your um, you know your financial equity into this project, you can sign up to be a founding partner. Um, and really have a say in how the technology is built and have a bigger piece of the pie if this does make money, which I think it probably eventually will. Um, that's my personal opinion. There's no promises, of course. Um, and then, you know, so you can either become a member where when it's built, you get to do your digital identity or a founding partner where you actually help us build it. And that's really exciting too. Well, this is all kind of, <clears throat> this is all super interesting stuff because I, I, um, there are a lot of problems in medicine and then, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of problems in medicine and you don't realize, I guess 
like any entrepreneur, right? You have to recognize there's a problem and that there's there could be a solution. And oftentimes there's just struggles you have and you don't think, oh, there might be a way to get around <laughs> dealing with this. And that's that's the beauty of people who have the entrepreneurial sort of insight into the world, that they recognize problems and and can find solutions. So any other last parting thoughts before we go? Um, I think that in general, the, uh, I want the American public, patients and physicians to realize that this new technologically advanced age is coming. The singularity is coming. We are learning things so rapidly. And in the future, dollar data is dollars. And so you can either, you know, be proactive, educate yourself about these new technologies and do what's right for you and make this, make uh, decisions in your daily life with where you put your attention, where you put your time, um, based on your educated, um, you know, based on you educating yourself or it will be imposed on you by systems, whether it be healthcare systems or government systems or, you know, the Amazons, the Googles, the Facebooks of the world, they're getting bigger and bigger and they're all collecting your data and they're all making decisions. And I'm not saying this is good or bad, but I am saying it's something that we should be paying very close attention to and really thinking, is this how we want our lives to be run? Or do we want to be in charge of how our lives are run? I'm into that. I think uh, the data is, data is king. And the more, you, the more control you have over it, you can at least choose to hand it over or not, right? And that's the, I guess that's the key in the whole process. Exactly. Well, you know, thanks so much for an early Saturday morning interview. <laughs> I appreciate it. It's always, um, it, and I always, I've mentioned this in many other podcasts. It's difficult getting two docs to um, to schedule an hour in a week. I don't know how you could do this more than once a week, at least not for me. So I appreciate you taking the time out and to, to explain this. And again, I encourage everyone to go to hpec.io to find out more. Uh, anything else we talked about, some of former episodes will obviously be in the show notes page at theparadox.com slash 018. Dr. Leah Hudson Houston, excuse me. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me and thank you for listening, everyone. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher and share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash The Paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com. You know, there was a little bit of screechiness in your audio, and I think I can probably get some of that out, but I'm not quite sure why that was. If I think it's probably the same thing I heard in the beginning, because it was really weird. Um, yeah. But, huh. Yeah. It's all good. You know what? For as much as people are paying for the show, I think it's it's it'll probably be fine. So how much are they paying? Zero. Oh, okay. I was gonna say I didn't know. I I listened to it for free. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like those suckers. <laughs>